0: And so today, really excited, we're diving into a brand new series um, that we're calling Prepare the Way, and uh, we are beginning a new book of the Bible that we're going to begin to walk through for the next um, 873 weeks, Uh, or it's going to seem like that, okay? (laughs) We're going to dive into the book of Mark, Uh, we're going to dive into the book of Mark, and so I'm really, really excited, Prepare the Way is going to be our first series in uh, a series of series as we walk through the book of Mark. So if you've got a copy of Scripture, let's go there, we use it, it is vitally important, um, to hear from God, and so Mark chapter 1 is where we'll be today. If you've got a hard copy, digital copy, open, follow along, and we will put verses on the screen for you to track along with me. Now, in January, if you were with us at any point in the month, or if you weren't, here's where we were, we were in a series called Something and someone. And here's really the basis. If you missed those four weeks, you can go back and podcast them or video, whatever you want to do. Um, but here was the basis. It was a charge and a challenge to all of us um, not to just be people who can find our spiritual lives to 60 minutes or 75, depending on how long the preacher talks. Okay, on Sunday in a building, but that we would be personal people who literally walk out the practices of Jesus, like that we would know him and seek him. And so there's a charge to read something from God's word, a charge to pray something as a follower of Jesus, to grow with someone. And then last week we talked about investing in those around you. If you missed any of it, I would highly encourage you to go back. Now, here's where we are as we step into February. Um, one, that series is over, okay? No cards in your seats today. I promise I would not make you move it, all right? And so I didn't. But listen to me, more importantly, um, man, the call and the challenge from that series has not left. In fact, it sits at the foundation really of where all of us are. Like this weekend for Man Up Weekend, like it was something and someone. Like it was all about, man, engage the word and pray and grow with one another because we believe it that much. It doesn't shut off on December, or excuse me, January 31st. And so, um, man, beautiful thing, if you're walking with us through some of our reading plans, we have a a resource called Life Journal. It's on our website. It's just, there's some plans, there's resources. If you want to know where to read God's Word or help understanding it, it's all there. And if you're reading our New Testament or our whole Bible reading plan, um, this week, literally like this week, guess what book we start reading? Mark good you were better than 9 30 don't tell them I said that okay but you were better than 9 30 they're a little slower waking up um yes so we're diving into the book of Mark I'm walking through some of that reading and so let's go like together if you're not already in God's word if you need a place to start let's read Mark together it'd be an awesome thing if you're reading Mark Monday through Saturday and then you show up to this place okay and then you correct all the things that I preach wrong about Mark it would be awesome just send me an email okay don't come see me afterwards I'm a little fragile butterfly after I get done preaching (laughs) All right, so here's where we're going, okay, as we dive into that together. A couple of notes just to set up the book of Mark, since we're going to be in it for a minute, kind of need to know where it's coming from. Uh, Mark, if you've studied scripture, is the, what, the second of four listed gospel books, as we call it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And although it is listed second, um, some scholars actually believe it may have been written first. Um, The book of Mark was written by... Actually, John Mark, okay? No, I'm just kidding. We know him as Mark, but he also was called John Mark. Uh, he was a friend of Peter. If you find a whole lot of Peter's story, he's all throughout the New Testament. They were best buds. Um, and the book of Mark was written most likely to Gentile Christians, probably in the church at Rome. Now, one little fun fact that you can just write down and bring up over lunch today is that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, is really a lot more about what Jesus did than what Jesus did said. Here's what I mean by that. Um, if you read Matthew or Luke or John and you've got like you a know, hard copy of Scripture with the red letters, okay, um, that's Jesus speaking. Mark has some of that, but it actually has less of that than the other gospel books because it just records a lot more of what Jesus did than exactly what he said. It is still true, and it is still very much about the life and the ministry of Jesus, which is why we're going there. And so today we'll start in Mark chapter 1. And verse one, and here's what it says. Follow along with me as I read out loud. It says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, and make straight paths for him. Now, Mark's gospel and John, you don't read a lot of in December. You know why? Because they don't record nativity, all right? They don't record Jesus and the shepherd and the wise men and all that. He's not saying it didn't happen, but for Mark, he's just getting it straight to the point. He has Jesus just sort of arriving on the scene, okay? But don't hear it wrong. The book of Mark is all about the person of Jesus. In fact, we just read it in verse 1. It says, The beginning of the good news, which is what? Good news also means gospel. About who? About Jesus the Messiah, The book of Mark is all about the centerpiece, who is Jesus? In fact, if you're somewhat new to Scripture, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation or maps, however far you want to read, is all about one story, one plan, and that's God's incredible redemptive plan that came through, what, the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, another amazing thing about Scripture, if you haven't caught it, is that the Old Testament and New Testament, although separated historically by hundreds of years, they support one another. Um, I like to say it this way, the Word supports the Word. And it's a really beautiful thing. And in fact, Mark just called it out right there. Verse 2 and verse 3, Mark referenced the Old Testament. Did you see a little quotation? He referenced the words of an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. So let me read to you literally the verse that Isaiah spoke that Mark then referenced. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Look at it on the screen. It says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way, thus our sermon series title, Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, grasp this. Isaiah the prophet wrote these words hundreds of years before the moment that this coming servant that we're going to talk about in a moment happened. How does a man write words and hundreds of years later, it happens just like he wrote it? Only the voice and the inspiration of God. Okay? So lest we question where does the Bible come from, And it is the living, breathing, inspired word of God. And like, there you go. That's enough proof right there. Now, Isaiah says there's a coming servant, that we're going to mention his name in a second, and he says the mission and the message of this man who is coming is prepare the way. Prepare the way for the coming Messiah, whose name will be Jesus. Now, here's what Isaiah sort of was tying in as he used those words, prepare the way. He was most likely referring to um, the, the road crew, if you will, of that day, preparing the way for someone to enter the city. Very much like we prepare for a parade or different large events, these guys would come in and they would smooth out the potholes, right? We love potholes, don't we? And they would smooth out the potholes or they would even off the hills or bumps in the road for the arrival of a king or someone who is highly respected to come into town. And so Isaiah says there's coming a servant and his role will be to prepare the way. Now, as we start today and start this series together, let's lift out what Isaiah said about this coming servant and let's connect it to your life and mine and let's do that with this question. Does your life, does your life prepare the way for the work of God in and through you? Like as a, as a wife, as a single parent, as a high school student, as a grandparent, like does the does the rhythms and the priorities and the passions and what you invest yourself in is it actively and intentionally preparing the way for the work of God first in you and then also through you? And here's why I ask that question, because it is possible to proclaim to be a Christian especially in our part of the world, to go to church buildings with steeples or in shopping centers, to go to wherever they have services, and do some religious activities. You can do all those things and still never really live a life that prepares the way for God to work in and through. And I'm just saying to you today that my hope for, for my life and my family and this family is that we would be people and a faith family that like actively, intentionally lives in such a way and organizes our lives and our pleasures and our priorities in such a way that we are we are actively filling the potholes of our life. We're actively knocking down the heels and the bumps of our life so that we are what, So that we are preparing the way. I Man, God, God, would you come and move? We, we are ready for you in me and through me. Now Maybe we're not all there, and so I think it is important to spend a moment of honesty, if we will, um, about what could prevent us, you, me, high school student, grandparent, what could prevent us in our lives from preparing the way for the work of God in our life. Now, I just listed four. These are just observations. This is not directly from Scripture. These are observations that I've made as I interact with a lot of people's lives. It's not an all-encompassing list, but here's some things that I pinpointed. First, I believe that apathy— Apathy can prevent you and me from preparing the way for the work of God in our life. And here's how I would just say that very plainly. Um, There are some people who just don't give a rip. Like, they just do. There, There are some people who are the hard soul of Mark 4. And when that seed drops, it is not land. There's no fertile soul for it to land. And their life is just enamored with so many other things that they're looking to feel the pot of pleasure with in their life. And listen, I, I, I hope that's not you. okay? It may be you. Um, if it is you, you're welcome here. okay? Um, but, but if it's not you, there's a chance that maybe you're burdened for somebody in your life that they feel that way. Like maybe it's an adult child or maybe it is a coworker, or a family member, or a friend, and man, you've been praying for them. You've been like trying to go to lunch and like love them and slide some truth in, like over and over and right. And, and apathy, apathy is really just closing their heart. Um, here's a second thing that I, I listed that could prevent us from preparing the way for the work of God. Uh, I just called it doubt. And, and here's what I mean by that. We can doubt that God could ever do special things in and through our life. And kind of here's the progression I've watched that, that gets there, is that there, there is a mistake that is made in the past. There's a season of struggle. There's this hidden thing that's secretive that we don't want anybody else to know. Um, there's this relationship or these relationships that fell apart or this failure. And listen to me, watch this. The enemy, just, he just compounds on that, especially when you get in isolation. That's why we say do not do life alone. But he will compound on top of that, and he will, he will get you so deep in the pit that he'll convince you, man, that God, the holy God, that everybody's singing about, I man, there's no way, like you, no, there's no way that he would like, get in your life and do something special through your life. And therefore, that doubt, if you will, can, can hold us back from living a life that's like actively going, God, would you move? God, I invite you in. So apathy, doubt. The third one, I'm just calling it this, it's um, callousness, that's how I'm phrasing it, you could say bitterness. Um, callousness can prevent us from preparing the way. And here's what I mean by that. It's a callousness to spiritual things. And oh my goodness, this is everywhere. Here's how this begins to manifest itself. Um, It would be like if you said, man, I I did pray to God. Like I, I prayed that he would do This thing, X, Y, Z, that he would save my parents' marriage, that he would heal this person, that he would provide in this way, that he would heal whatever that is. You fill in the blank with maybe something that you've prayed for, and then maybe God didn't answer the way that you thought he should answer, and therefore it created this level of callousness and harshness inside of you. Okay. Second would be this. Maybe you would go, you know what? I did try to read God's word. Like, man, I heard it, and I read it for a season or a month, and it was just, just kind of dry. Like it didn't, really, um, it didn't really mean anything to me. And it just, man, it's kinda, I don't, I didn't, God didn't speak. Or how about this one that I've heard more times than I can count. Um, man, we were going to church. And those people at church, the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, the youth leader, the other couple in our small group or Sunday school class, they fill in the blank. So, man, it just really kind of closed us off. Because that's just really, if, if that's how they are, then all church people are that way. And then we take the label of the callousness that we've created about a people, and we project it on a holy and a good God. And therefore, man, if you're living that way, right, why would I be actively preparing the way for God to move? I'm not really interested in that. And so I think there's apathy, there's a, there's a callousness, there's a doubt, and then here's the last one, and it's just, man, it's like an all-skate, right, in our moment in history, and I just called it busyness. Um, man, I don't know how you feel, um, but like I feel we are busier at this moment in history than ever before. Okay? And like I wasn't floating around in the 1600s. Maybe they were really busy. Um, but I'm just saying like right now, you, you don't need a thing added to your calendar. You, you really don't. Like You're not looking for that. Um, but what I know is that we can get so busy with life, sometimes with really good things, that we miss the best thing. And we can all become a busy Martha, and we can forget that it was actually the still and quiet Mary who experienced the greatest blessing. Not by busying herself with more, but by doing what? Actually sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so apathy, doubt, callousness, busyness. I mean, the list could go on. I'm just stopping it at those four. But all of those things just, and listen, you don't have to try. You don't have to go seek those things. They happen to you. I would say they are a strategy of the enemy in our culture. And when he can get up in you, man, it just you close your off. like you, you don't pave the potholes. You put up the closed road sign. There's, God's not going to move and work in me. Now, hear me very clearly. Can God work? Can he move? Can he speak in any moment and in any situation? Absolutely. I've seen him knock down the closed road sign. But... We cannot complain and blame God. God, why haven't you done anything in my life? Why haven't you moved in my life? Why haven't you shown up in this and that when we're never preparing the way? And so I think there's a a work inside of us that goes, God, what is in my life that may be slowing down me from hearing from you? Now, pick up verse 4. Here we go, Mark 1. And so John the Baptist, there's our character. He appeared in the wilderness, and he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And they were confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, Mark, or excuse me, verse 4, Mark introduces the man that Isaiah wrote about hundreds of years before, who came with the message to prepare the way, and his name is what? We know him as John the Baptist. Now, little fun fact, this is all free, totally for you. Uh, The name John actually means, like the name John means, the Lord is gracious. That's at its core meaning. So if you know a guy named John, if you're married to a John, if your son's name is John, um, I concluded this week one of two things. Either it means the Lord has been gracious to you, that he would allow that person to even be in your life, or it means that he needs an immense amount of grace in your life. Okay? So I'll let you determine from the John that you know. And if your name is John, now you are very uncomfortable, and I apologize, all right? (laughs) John was known, we know him as John the Baptist, or he was called John the Baptizer, and verse five told us why they call him that, because people literally came from all over, and they were confessing their sins, and they were being baptized by John. Now, here's what I want us to talk about for a moment. Verse four says that John preached a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance, Why are those words on there? What does that mean? Why is that significant? I would say to you, it is very significant, not just in Mark 1, but even today. Baptism was already a practice in the Jewish community. It was not like a foreign thing, but it was a ceremonial washing, and it was mainly for anybody who was a Gentile, not the people of God, who wanted to become a Jew. Like They they went through this ceremonial washing, but here's what happens. John shows up on the scene and he's blowing people's minds because he was preaching baptism as a spiritual step for Jews, also known as the people of God, to also take. So think with me for a second. If you're a Jew and you're the person of God, but you're taking a step, what that meant was you were confessing, I'm just as far away and jacked up as the Gentiles. Not a really popular decision or thing to do. But John shows up on the scene and he preaches a baptism of repentance, which meant that this spiritual act of baptism was preceded by or accompanied with repentance. And John was so fired up over this, it was such a big deal because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, if you remember them from the New Testament, the highly religious people were doing all these religious acts and they were claiming to be religious, but here was the void there was really no evidence of repentance in their life. And John walks up on the scene, he's like, hey guys, I know this is no place to be real, but like, what if we actually practice what we preached? And he begins preaching this baptism of repentance. That there would be repentance followed by this spiritual act. Now, chances are, if you've been in the South or been to church five times, you've heard the word repentance or repent and maybe you have some level of understanding, but there's a lot of us in this moment. So I want to center us not on just a churchy word, but on like the weight of this, because it carries great weight. And I think Scripture really kind of highlights three levels or three parts of repentance. So I'm going to give them to you real quick. We'll put them on the screen, write them down. Repentance first involves this. Repentance involves acknowledgement of sin. Acknowledgement of sin. Psalm 51 David, remember him, guy who killed Goliath? Remember what he also did? He committed adultery. And this is his response, Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you, capital Y, so who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Against you and you only have I sinned, God. And, and I've done what is evil in your sight. And so, God, you're, you are right. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not making excuses. You're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge me. And then verse 5, man, he just goes like, like, this is who I am. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. What did David do? Man, he, he admitted his knowledge of his sin, and the same thing must be true for us. So repentance requires acknowledging to God we've sinned, that we've chosen our own way. But it's not just that. Here's part two. Repentance requires sorrow over sin. Repentance requires sorrow over sin. And all of my parents are going to laugh and connect with this. This doesn't mean I'm sorry I got caught. That's what your seven year old feels. Okay. And we've all been there. Sorrow over sin is not, oh man, they found out. No, sorrow over sin sounds a lot more like this, man, I feel not condemnation, but I feel a level of regret in my life because I've, I've sinned against a holy God. That he created me, he loves me. The story of this book is that he pursued me, and I just turned and walked the other way. And man, that must break his heart. That's a sorrow over sin. So there's an acknowledgement of sin. Hey, I got stuff. There's a sorrow, man, there's a brokenness in me. But still, that's not the end of it. Here's the third part of repentance. Repentance means fleeing from sin. Fleeing from sin. Second Chronicles, um, God gives this warning to his people, and we love to use this verse, right, as the church, but there's one part that maybe we don't fully get. 2 Chronicles 7.14, look at it on the screen. God says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, and they would seek my face, and they would do what? They would turn. They would turn from their wicked ways, their brokenness. And then, what, would, what did God promise? When, when they turn, then I will. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Okay, And we are all aware we're living in a very broken world, even in an in God we trust, proclaimed country, where we are not actively turning from sin. And God says, when my people turn or flee, then I will heal, then I will forgive. And so what do we learn? Well, repentance involves acknowledging my sin, sorrow over sin, and fleeing from sin. Take this to the bank. Anything short of one, two, and three, all parts of that, anything short of that is not repentance. So as you're teaching your kids, as you're discipling your teenagers or your grandkids okay and you're teaching them about repentance it's not oh no i made a boo boo okay but it's that progression of god i'm sorry that i broke your heart and i don't want to walk that way anymore and i can't do it on my own but through the power of your spirit that is in me would you help me to go this way and i may make mistakes But God, I realize that is not who I am. That is not how I'm called to walk. And there's a beautiful promise in that. Okay, listen, when and where there is true repentance, listen to me, God meets that with full forgiveness. And John the Baptist called all people first to repent. He said, it starts right here. So here's my question for you. Um, have you truly, biblically repented? Not, oh man, I hate I got caught by my spouse. Or, oh no, my parents found out. Or, man, what is that going to do to my name and my character at work? No, no, no. It's it a lot deeper than that. But like, have you truly repented? Because all of us carry sin And that should lead us to a sorrow, not condemnation, but a sorrow over that, that then leads us to a full-fledged fleeing of that through the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. Mark goes on about our main character, John the Baptist, verse 6. It gets kind of interesting. He breaks down some personal things about him. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate, here's his diet, he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, verse 7, and this was his message. He says, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Mark spend a moment telling us about the unique clothing of uh, John the Baptist and his food? Well, if you read scripture, other prophets, including Elijah uh, and some others, did similar things. They dressed in similar ways, ate similar things. And the reality is, here's the main reason that we understand this food and this clothing really indicated a lifestyle that was just opposed to self-indulgence. They were so into the things of God, they were like, man, may nothing of this world pollute me, May I walk in cleanliness and purity before God. But here's where I want us to dwell. Verse 8, John the Baptist says that Jesus, who will come after him, will baptize with, what did he say? Will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, John baptized with water. He put them down in a creek, but he says Jesus is coming. He's getting baptized with the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? I think it still plays into today. There's still like a lot of kind of a pollution of even some of our thoughts even today that need to, I think, be clarified. What was he saying? John was saying that while I baptized with water as a symbol, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, meaning that anyone who repented, acknowledge, sorrow, flee, and then surrender to me receive my spirit trusted in me made me leader and lord of their life that i would give them jesus would give them a gift what would that gift be his spirit that the holy spirit would come into us and would be a promise for us so therefore he says jesus is coming and it's not just about the water but it's about a greater promise jesus says man greater than i is the spirit who comes after me and that is the baptism that comes with the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 9 is one of the coolest, most Polaroid uh, pictures in all of Scripture. Verse 9, Mark 1, at that time, Jesus came, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then look at this picture. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. So you've probably read the story. Jesus approaches John, says, will you baptize me? And John does it. Now, this account is also recorded in Matthew 3. If you want to go read it, there's a couple extra details. But neat thing, Scripture says that all three persons of the Trinity were present at this moment. Did you see it? God the Father spoke, Jesus the Son was baptized, and the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, descended. In other words, this is a big, big moment. And for one of only three recorded times that we see in Scripture, God the Father speaks audibly from heaven. And what did he say? It says, He said, That's my boy, that's my son. That's my DNA. And with him, I'm very pleased. He's walked in obedience to me. Now, let's be honest. Like, of all the people who didn't have to climb into the water to be baptized, it was Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy Son of God. But he did because here's what we learn as you read the New Testament and the life of Jesus. Jesus never calls us to something that he doesn't first do first. He always goes first. Love, greater than you and I ever will. Forgive, greater than you and I ever could. Serve, he went first. Sacrifice, we'll never get to that extent. And here we see that Jesus even modeled baptism. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, I think there are four significances that I want to give you really quickly, and maybe you want to write them down. Scripture points us to four reasons Why did Jesus get baptized? Why does that matter in this moment and to our lives today? Here's the first reason. Because Jesus was baptized to indicate his full consecration to God. Like the ceremonial washing that already existed, it it was to show consecration, devotion, commitment to something. And so Jesus says, I'm going to do this to show you I'm sold out to God the Father. And we also understand that all of the righteous requirements of God were in Jesus, And I know that makes your brain explode if you slow down and think about it enough, right? But all of God the Father was in Jesus the Son. And that was indicated here. Here's the second reason it's significant. Jesus' baptism announced the arrival of the Messiah and his earthly ministry. It said it's game day. He's here, and he's about to move and work on behalf of God in the flesh. Here's the third reason. This one's really powerful. Why this was significant Because through his baptism, Jesus identified himself with the sin and the failure of humanity. Now hear me clearly. He was fully without sin. But he stepped into this moment to identify with our brokenness. Why? Because it would enable him to become our substitute and Savior. Thus, from our foundational passage here, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to become sin, so that what? So that you and I might have old to new. Highly significant. And here's the fourth reason it's such a big deal. Jesus' baptism was significant because it became an example for all of his followers from that moment forward to model. And from that moment, right here, Mark 1, Matthew 3, baptism has served as a biblically obedient sign of our faith. Or here's how we like to say it around here. Baptism is a public declaration of, of your personal transformation. It is a public declaration of your personal transformation. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change in your life. When a person repents, acknowledge sorrowfully, and they turn their life over to Jesus, and he becomes leader and Lord, not just of Sunday, but of every day, and they meet him, and the Spirit is given, listen to me, that is a personal decision. There's a drawing of the Spirit, there's a kindred with God, and then he calls them into that, but it doesn't remain inward. Scripture here, Jesus modeled, it then goes outward and it becomes public in the way that we declare our faith in Jesus. Jesus died publicly so that we might make our faith known publicly. In fact, here's what Jesus said. These are powerful words. Matthew 10, 32. Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, here's my promise, I will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. That feels like a pretty big deal. Verse 33, though, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, let's make this very, very clear. Baptism doesn't save us, but it serves as a symbol that we are saved. Baptism is the public picture that I am not who I once was that God has begun a work in me that started with repentance and now is in this long journey of what we call sanctification, where I'm continually being changed to be more and more like Jesus. However, look at what happens next, okay? Because a lot of you, you tuned out on the baptism part. You're like, I did that when I was 17, when I was 7, when I was 37. But listen to me, but, but there's an extra part that's added on. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, follow the flow. It says, at once the Spirit, God's Spirit, Sent him, who? Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Who? Jesus was. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, stay with me. Follow this flow. Like we're reading from verse 1, we're going to end up in verse 15. But what? Like Jesus did what? He just had one of the most powerful. Instagram moments, right, where, like, men, we're there. Like, the whole Trinity's there. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. Like, this is a big, big deal. He's obeying the Father. He's modeling it for all of humanity. He's setting the table for him to be the sacrificial lamb. This is, like, one of the highest highs. And two verses later, what's going on? He's alone. He's in the wilderness. And the enemy is taking their best shots at him. Here's why I highlight that, because one of the greatest cultural and spiritual struggles of our little neck of the woods is the idea that baptism saves you or changes you. Can I tell you something, church? Scripture's very clear. We're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. Life doesn't get easier once you publicly declare which side of the war you're on. In fact, if we're thinking war strategy, that now makes me a clearly identified target of the enemy. But there's so many people, all right, and we thank Ms. Underwood for saying there's something in the water, but if I might correct her today, it's not about the water, but it's about the posture and the position and the repentance of our heart. And so here's what we're going to say today, baptism does not rid you of temptation, but it reminds you of who you belong to. It does not rid you of temptation. Don't, don't think of it wrong. But it does remind you of who you belong to, and that's an amazing promise. Right? Verse 13 says what? It says, in his temptation, did you see it last phrase? Jesus was surrounded by who? Said, oh, you missed it. I know you did. He, angels. Angels came and attended him. Church, if Jesus needed, Jesus needed angel backup, In the face of temptation, you and I need all of the special forces of heaven to come around us. Which is why, in this spiritual house, as we walk people towards that next step, the biblically obedient picture of what God's done in them, there's a process of like, man, do you understand repentance? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what you're doing? We ain't going swimming. But like, we're declaring something, and then out of that, it's not, here's a picture hanging on the wall. But it is, let's celebrate your obedience, and now may you do the hard work of discipleship. That you would know him, that you would follow him for all of your days, because the enemy's aiming at you. But here's the good news. It reminds you of who you belong to. And when you take that step and you look back at that picture, you think about that day, you think about that moment in your life, you are reminded of what? That I now belong to the God of angel armies, who is with me and who does fight for me. And it's not about how good I am, but it's about the promise that he's with me, he's for me, he goes before me, and I just need to know him deeply, sink my life in him. So then when there is the attack of the enemy, I'm suited I'm protected. That's why growing in Christ matters so much. And around here we say it four words. We say get life. And we're all about leading people to Jesus. But then we say give life. I mean, a part of that means that I want to know him deeply. That's why we took 100 dudes to the woods this weekend. So that they might know the cost of discipleship, but they would know the joy of belonging to a heavenly father, that he's for them. And he has plans for them. Here's our last two verses of today. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison. What? He just did all these amazing things for God. Yeah. Following God doesn't always lead to a bed of roses, right? He's put in prison. Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Our passage closes today as John's thrown in prison, right? He's still repenting, but he's still preaching. And verse 15 says, John's message and Jesus' message, they were all the same. Simple yet crazy powerful, and it was a three-word sermon. I know you wished I preached in three words today, but my name ain't John the Baptist. I'm sorry. But here's the message. Repent and believe. To so preach that message, and he preached it, and he's like, "I, don't, I, I don't." It was so fast; I don't think they heard me. Repent and believe. He's like, "No, I, I, they heard, but they ain't getting it." No, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I say that to you today, church. And Jesus proclaimed it, and John proclaimed it. Because here's why it's such a big deal. The truth is, you never graduate from repent and believe. You never mature out of spiritually repent and believe. Your baptism date, whenever that was, if you've been baptized, doesn't remove you from the call to repent and believe. In fact, you can't grow up in your faith if you don't first start with repent and believe, and you can't keep growing in your faith unless you continue to repent and believe. That we would repent. there would be a baptism of repentance. That the Holy Spirit of God would be in me. And we would repent. And we would believe. And we would live it. So here's what I say today, church. The word is true. All day, every day. And the word is clear. And so as we take John the Baptist and Jesus' words. And his example of obedience. And then we just put it on ourselves. I mean, there's really kind of. Three places, and all of us are, are, are one of these. One question is, have you truly repented? Like, biblically repented. Not, sorry, I got caught. But ha- have you acknowledged the brokenness of your life that separates you from God? Has it moved you to a place of sorrow? Not shame crawling the corner, but just like, man, I, like I offended a Heavenly Father who loves me. And has it moved you to the place where you you don't want to be that person anymore? So have you truly repented? If you have not, man, it starts with repent. If so, have you been baptized as a believer? Because you can't celebrate something that you've never received. Have you made public what God has done in you personally? Have you been baptized as a believer? And if so... Here's the question for all of the rest of you. Are you continually, continually living a life of repent and believe? And repent and believe. You see, for us to see and know the will and the work of God in our lives and to prepare the way for that to happen, it first starts with obedience. It starts with obedience. Obedience. And there's something in there for every single one of us to choose or not to choose to be obedient today. But much like John declared in the prison and Jesus declared with his life, repent and believe. Will you obey?
1: Thanks for joining us online today. As we gather, we sing songs of worship, we center ourselves on the truth of God's Word, we encourage one another through community, and we do it all so that we might be changed to live more like Jesus. Through our time today, we pray God showed you what it means for you to follow Jesus with your life and to live as the church in the world. We are available and ready to pray for you and encourage you as you discover and grow in your faith. To speak with one of our ministry team members or to have someone pray for you, you can text your first name to 601-397-6111 or message us through any of our social media channels. Our ministry team would love to pray for you and help you in any way. You can also find reading plans and other resources to help you take next steps in your faith on our website. That's www.theexchange.cc. As we close out our time today and prepare to scatter as the church, let's speak out loud our declaration together. We believe the great exchange took place when Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so we could know God. We exist to see people exchange their old life for new life in Christ and live out their purpose. Christ's love compels us to exchange ideas for truth. God's Word is our standard. Selfishness for serving. We will serve others. Pleasing for reaching, we will share our faith. Keeping for dispersing, we will make disciples. Forgetting for celebrating, we will praise God. We are the church.